We're talking the seven bold judgments. We're also talking about the hardness of men's hearts and why people blame God for the bad times and don't thank God in the good times. Welcome to the deep end. This is the Bible, and this is the Deep End Podcast, where we talk about the Bible in modern day language. Thank you for joining us. This is the Deep End. All right, welcome in to the Deep End Podcast on Wednesday at noon. My name is Tim. I'm your host, and I'm so glad that you have joined us. Episode 26, season number two of the Deep End, and I I'm looking forward to getting to the content in Revelation today. But first, a little bit of news as we like to do here on the Deep End every week. It is a big week for uh, Christianity in history this week. Uh, May, something about the last week of May, is a very significant week. Well, first off, uh, May 26th is our executive pastor Shane Parsons' birthday. He is a very old 53 years old, and make sure you remind him about that. That will help me out a lot and uh, make me just feel a little bit better about how young I am. But moving on from that, in church history, lots of things happened in this week. Um, did you know, I, I pastor a church in Massachusetts. Now, Massachusetts is not exactly the bastion of Protestant faith that it once was. It is actually dominated by Catholics. Over half of the Massachusetts population identifies as Catholic today. Uh, Nothing against the Catholics, but did you know just how funny it is that places and regions can change? It's amazing. In 1647, on May 26th, in 1647, Massachusetts Puritans banned Catholic priests. (laughs) They didn't ban drinking. They didn't ban gambling. I'm sure those things were already banned. But they banned Catholic priests. Can you believe that? It's uh, the anniversary this week of the uh, time when the Puritans controlled Massachusetts Congress and enacted a law that banned Catholic priests from entering the colony. Any Catholic priest found in the colony was to be banished from Massachusetts on first offense, and check this out, possibly executed if a repeat offender. However, the law failed to stop the eventual spread of Catholicism in the area. Today, again, half of Massachusetts identifies as Catholic. By the time of the American Revolution, anti-Catholic sentiment had simmered down. Catholics weren't welcomed with open arms, but they weren't in danger of being hanged. That's always a positive movement. Uh, This is from the Boston Magazine in 2016. Now, while priests were banned here more than 350 years ago, the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston was established about 160 years later by Pope Pius VII in 1808. So guess what? Uh, Regions can change. And my hope is that the region changes from its secular swing right now into a gospel-centered swing. Hopefully that will happen in Massachusetts. So keep praying and keep helping and working for the gospel to be pronounced and preached in New England. Also this week marks the anniversary of John Calvin's death in Geneva, Switzerland. Calvin, who is obviously associated with Calvinism, uh, the, the belief, theological belief, that God predestined those who would be saved and those who would be damned uh, from before the foundation of the world, uh, died in uh, Geneva, like I said, Switzerland. Uh, he was a prolific writer. He commentaried on the whole Bible, did a commentary on the whole Bible, and countless uh, pastors and leaders of the church today are indebted to his influence. And then also, lastly, this week marks the anniversary of the birth of G.K. Chesterton, he, is a, he was a prolific writer, lay theologian, born in London, England. Uh, the American Chester Society, Chesterton Society estimates that Chesterton wrote hundreds of poems, 200 short stories, 4,000 news articles, and about 100 books, one of which titled The Everlasting Man might have influenced a young C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. You never know. When you put content out there, writing, video, blogs, whatever you do, you never know who is going to touch. And that's why we do the Deep End Podcast. Who knows who might be touched by the content of this podcast? One could hope that some world changer out there is listening even as I speak and will bring the gospel to untold, uncharted waters in human history. Uh, Charles Chesterton argued eloquently against all the trends that eventually took over the 20th century, materialism, scientific determinism, moral relativism, and spineless agnosticism, noted the society. He defended the common man and common sense. He defended the poor. He defended the family. He defended beauty, and he defended Christianity and uh, the Catholic faith. He was a Catholic, a diehard Catholic. Uh, I love Chesterton. I think everybody should love Chesterton, who's a Christian. He just had a way of putting things. A couple of quotes that I love from him. 
very famous quote is, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and therefore left untried. How true is that? Uh, I love this quote. He says, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. Do you take things for granted or with gratitude? That's a great quote. And then my favorite, which you've heard me say this on the podcast many times, quote, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. And that is where we are as a society, as we have demystified the universe and uh, worshiped the uh, the object of scientific rationalism, we have now moved beyond that into the mystical realm of whatever our feelings dictate to us, and we follow those things and become capable of believing, as Chesterton said, capable of believing anything. And it's getting crazy in that regard. But thank God for the gospel. Thank God for the words of Scripture that keep the church, keep the Christian grounded in Him And so with that in mind, we're going to go to the Word of God. Very short, deep-end news segment today. Let's go into the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Okay, we are up up to chapter 16 in Revelation today. Revelation chapter 16 introduces us to the seven bowl judgments. And we are going to talk about God's final wrath upon humankind, upon the world that, depending on your view of Revelation, uh, took place either in 70 AD upon uh, the, the uh, city of Jerusalem that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and about 40 years later, the Romans came in and pillaged the city and destroyed them and scattered them to the nations. Or if you're a historicist, it's been happening since around, oh, I don't know, uh, the time Jesus ascended and has continued through many different regimes and empires throughout world history, uh, culminating in the historicist view, of course, in the French Revolution. Or if you're a futurist, like I was brought up, we're talking about the last half of the last seven years of human history, the Great Tribulation, when God will finally, once and for all, judge all those who have warred against his saints and against his church in the end times. Or, lastly, if you're a spiritualist, Whatever anti-Christian forces might come against those who believe in Christ. Again, we are Americans, so we are so often disconnected from this, but there are strong anti-Christian forces around the world. Forces in India, forces in China, forces in other countries like Uganda, where it is very difficult to be a Christian, where your rights are stripped from you, where your Civil liberties are literally non-existent. And I was talking to one of Waters Church's missionaries last week, uh, Sadarshan Kamanapali. He is the leader of Mana Ministries in India. We sponsor a village there, and he was telling me about how the governmental regulations have been so harsh uh, for him and for other Christian organizations in that country. Now, this is a country where... I believe Sudarshan told me on average about 3,000 people a day are coming to Christ in India. And this is a threat to the dominant population of Hindus who want to make India a Hindu country. It is a secular government as of now, but there are so many Hindus in government that they want to impose strict legislation and limits upon Christians and their ability to uh, operate villages and orphanages and and uh, human resource uh, opportunities. And so here we have manamishans in India trying to help children, and the government keeps restricting them and hurting them and holding them back with more reg- regulations and uh, more laws that they have to follow and more I's that they have to dot and more T's that they have to cross. And so more and more we see this In other parts of the world, we see latent hostility in America toward Christianity. Uh, I don't have to tell you this. You see it every day. You see Christianity, true Christianity, mocked, ridiculed, vilified, uh, excoriated in the media, in the news. Uh, You see Christian standards rejected, uh, considered um, bigoted, outdated, on the wrong side of history. The latent hostility against Christianity But what I love about this study that we have done with Revelation is that Revelation reminds us that God is still in control. That is good news for the church. So 
you know, Jesus left the world and he left the disciples here to bear witness to who he was and what the gospel was. But he didn't leave us without two things. Number one, he didn't leave us without power. And the power is the Holy Spirit of God that comes into the believer, dwells in the body of believer, and empowers a believer to be his witness and his, uh, his body to the broken and sin-stained world around them. We bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and bring the hope of the gospel to those who have yet to hear it. But secondly, he not only left us with the Holy Spirit, he left us with his word, his revelation, which remember, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 talks about this. Revelation is not the revelation of what is yet to come only. Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. And so when we read Revelation, we learn how to see our world through the lens of Jesus. We learn how to see that though there might be blatant hostility against Christianity in countries like India, China, Pakistan, and Egypt, and there might be latent hostility in countries like uh, the UK, France, uh, America, we do not despair. We know that God is sovereign. And in the end, two words, friends, in the end, two words. Ready? Here's the two words. Jesus wins. That's revelation in a nutshell. Jesus wins. Hashtag, bam, Jesus wins. Hashtag that out as you share the deep end podcast on your favorite social media site today. Let us know in the comments where you're watching, by the way. Love to hear that. Love to know where you're watching from. Um, So Revelation 16, the wrath of God is poured out, poured out, symbol of bowl judgments here in Revelation chapter 16. And we're going to talk about judgment. And I think it's important that the church talks about judgment because we have to have a healthy view of God. We have to have a healthy view of God. We live in a culture that is more and more disconnected from the holiness of God. And consequently, we have no fear of God today, especially in countries like America, especially in uh, post-Christian West. God commands us to fear him. Deuteronomy 6.13, the Lord God says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Fear not meaning run away from, but fear meaning to revere, to have honor for, to be absolutely respectful of who he is and what he wants for your life. Make no mistake, Christian, you're going to be bombarded by many ideas of what your life should be. At the end of the day, really, the only opinion that matters is God's. Fear him. We are told in Proverbs, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. Isaiah says something incredibly interesting in Isaiah 33.5 and 6. He says, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. The question is, why is the fear of the Lord, reverent, holy, honor and respect and deference to God so important? Here's why. Because he made everything. He made everything. The universe is his idea. You are his idea. That's how the Bible opens up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's right there on page one so that you know you didn't create it. You were not the originator of your own own being. You are not the master of your own destiny. There is a God in heaven to whom you and I must give account and deference to. Now, when I walk into a business and I want to have a job there, I think it's important for me, if I want to get a good job with that business, I have to show respect to the owner of the business, yes? I have to show respect to the person who started it. Well, who started the universe? God started the universe. If you want to have a good position in the universe, respect the owner, respect the creator, respect the originator. Now, physically speaking, we fear God. Everybody fears God. Even non-believers fear God. Do you know why? Here's why. Everybody by and large, respects the physical laws that govern the universe. What I mean is no one out there today is going to go to a fourth-story apartment building and jump out the window. 
because they fear the law of gravity, don't they? Don't you? <laughs> of course you do. We fear the law of physicality, of the Newton's laws of motion, if you will, Newton's laws of physics, right, that govern our, 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 our universe. And so we fear these laws. Why? Because we know that they have consequences. Jump out the fourth story window of an apartment building, you get hurt. Most likely, you get killed. So you have a fear of God in that sense. But here's where the fear of God breaks down in regards to moral laws. So the physical laws we obey, we have, we have fear, we have reverence for. And when we obey the physical laws of the universe, guess what? We don't get hurt. We don't get hurt. You don't get hurt. I don't get hurt. But when we ignore the physical laws of the universe, we get hurt. Likewise, when we ignore the moral laws of the universe, we get hurt. And this is where the fear of the Lord breaks down because we don't see the the ramifications of ignoring God's moral laws quite as clearly and as quickly as we do ignoring his physical laws, right? So you jump out the fourth-story window, and immediately you break a lot of bones, and you possibly, most likely, die. But if you break the moral laws, you can go a long ways before you figure out, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. And this is where the fear Lord breaks down. So we respect the physical laws of the universe, but we disrespect the moral laws. And why am I why am I bearing down on this? Because if you disrespect the moral laws of the universe, you suffer, just like you would suffer for breaking or disrespecting the physical laws of the universe. And the fear of the Lord is wisdom because the fear of the Lord, when you say, I am going to respect God more than what I hear from television or from society or from my neighbor or from my friends or my, especially my unbelieving friends, when you respect God more than that, you prosper. You save yourself because he's the owner. He's the creator. He owns, he runs the business. And until, until you come up with your own universe, you're stuck in this one. So you have to realize that the owner wants what's best for you, and he's laid down laws in his word to guide you. And that fear of the Lord is to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Not what I think is right, but what you say is right. The Bible talks about this. Everybody thinks they're right in their own eyes, like the fool thinks he's right in his own eyes. It is the one who says, no, I'm not right in my own eyes. That's where wisdom begins. And how do we get that? We fear God. We listen to him. We put our respect in him and we respect what he says over what everybody else says. So Christian, what we're about to talk about is judgment, and I fear for the Christians because, I see, I'm not afraid of Christian. I'm not afraid of non-believers disrespecting the Lord. I expect them to. I'm afraid of Christians who are starting to disrespect the Lord, who are starting to not fear him, and then you listen to what other people say over what God says. So what we're going to see here in Revelation 6, 16 is a world that not only does not fear God, but hates God. And yes, hates God. And they are going to suffer. And in spite of their suffering in Revelation 16, they are still not going to turn to him. So let's get into it. Revelation 16, verse 1. Here's what it says. Verse 1 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Okay, just want to point out here, it's in bold, from the temple. Loud voice from the temple telling the angels, Go pour out on the earth, the wrath of God. The voice from the temple means that this is the voice of God. It's a loud voice. It's the voice of God. This wrath that we are about to see, this judgment upon the world that rejects God, is from God. I think I said this last week. I want to reiterate it again today. When we talk about the wrath of God, we are be- and when we talk about being saved, okay, Christians talk about, I'm saved, I'm saved. Okay, we are saved from what? Important theological distinction here. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are not saved from the devil. We are not saved from our own evil. We are not saved from bad things that happen, cancer, sickness, and all that kind of stuff. We are saved from the wrath of God. Theologically, that's the underlying biblical truth, right? Noah and his family were saved from the flood. How? But but, but who said the, but through the ark, but who sent the flood? God sent the flood. So, God's wrath poured out on humanity in Noah's age is a symbol for what is to come in the last days and all throughout human history where when men disregard and do not fear God, they experience the wrath of God to their own detriment. They suffer. I say this from the pulpit all the time. You and I, or anybody for that matter, disregard God and his word to our own detriment. To our own detriment. You disregard to your own detriment. So I say this 
a ton of times from the pulpit. Chris, uh, water church people, you you'll you know what I'm talking about. You'll hear this line a lot. I always say, I have zero skin in the game when it comes to your financial life, emotional life, sexual health, and physical well-being. I have zero skin in the game. You can do whatever you want. You can ruin your life. I have z- so when I say something that's not culturally acceptable but is biblically proper, like, hey, save sex for marriage. Oh, not culturally acceptable but biblically proper. Or, uh, you know... Um, don't lie, don't steal, uh, or uh, manage your money well, give God the first tenth, honor him first. See, I don't have any skin in the game when you disregard those laws. So I'm not saying those things because I'm thinking, man, I really need to control these people. I don't really need to control, nor do I want to control anyone. I'm talking about your health. God's talking about your health. God's talking about your prosperity. God's talking about your emotions, your physical well-being. Your, your sexual purity, your bodily safety, your financial security. When he says to do something, he's talking about doing that thing for your good. Sometimes people go to church, they get so offended when the pastor says something that they don't agree with. Well, first of all, it's okay to not agree with everything that I say as long as you're not a Christian. Like if you're a Christian and I'm saying it and it's in the Bible, you have no right to disregard that. That's actually God's word for you. And if you disregard that, that is going to come back on your head. I don't have skin in the game there. That's your loss. So we disregard God to our own detriment. So what should we do? We should lean in and listen. And the wonderful promise of scripture is that when we lean in and listen to God, we are blessed. You follow God's word, I'm telling you, you will be blessed. You will be blessed physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, I'm telling you. The problem is that just like we don't see long-term immoral behaviors, I'm sorry, just like we don't see immoral behaviors in the short term producing painful results, we often don't see uh, obedience in the short term producing powerful results. Does that make sense? I hope I said that clearly. What I'm saying is disobedience to God, it takes a long time before you see the pain. Obedience to God, it takes a long time before you see the blessing. That's how it works, friend. That's just called how it works. I mean, that's just how God has designed it to work. So you don't, you don't obey today and experience the blessing tomorrow. That could happen, and in minor ways it could happen, but, but on the large-scale factor of your life, when you obey long-term, over the long haul, you experience long-range blessing. When you disobey long-term or short-term, over the long haul, you experience long-term disaster. And this is where we struggle because we don't have a long-term view of our lives. We need a long-term view, and this is what Revelation is helping us see, that there's a, we need to have a long-term view. I was, I was sharing this with the church a couple of weeks ago uh, on the weekend here at Waters Church. I shared the seven benefits of prayer, scientifically, scientifically proven benefits of prayer. And I thought about just one small thing, something as simple as prayer, which God tells you to do all the time, right? Which God's word tells us to do. Pray without ceasing, the Bible says. Pray without ceasing. It produces benefits for you. So prayer is not you checking a box up in heaven and say, okay, I did it. Are you happy, God? Did I get the A? Can I now go outside and have ice cream? Like, no, that's not, that's not what obedience is about. Obedience is about your benefit. So the seven benefits were, one, it improves your self-control, It fights that mental fatigue that causes you to make stupid decisions. Number two, it enhances your relationships. You build stronger relationships with the people that you pray with and for. Number three, it improves the ability to cope with stress. You know, you pray right before you lose it, and it brings peace into your home, into your heart, into your body. Number four, it turns on disease-fighting genes. This is out of Harvard Medical School. Prayer literally switches on the genes that protect you from disorders like high blood pressure, cancer, infertility, and arthritis. Number five, it combats depression. Prayer increases the dopamine levels in the brain, which produces happiness. That's the the happiness drug, happiness hormone. I'm sorry, dopamine. Prayer actually... Purdue releases that in your brain. It helps, number six, control pain. This is out of Bowling Green University, uh, Bowling Green State University. Uh, spiritual prayer helped reduce the number of headaches practitioners experienced. And then seven, it promotes longer life. It actually it, it lengthens your life and strengthens your life. So not just long life, but strong, long life. And that's actually out of the Journal of Gerontology, which polled 4,000 seniors, found those who prayed lived longer and stronger than those who didn't. Like, just think about that. Just something that's some, so small. Just pray, you benefit. Pray, you benefit. 
Like pray, I don't benefit. You pray, I don't benefit unless you pray for me. But you benefit when you obey God. Why am I bearing in on this? Because we're going to talk about the wrath of God and what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is the consequences for disobeying and disregarding God. When you disobey and disregard God, you suffer. And I have no skin in the game. I'm just telling you what God says so that it goes well with you. And I thought about this, not just prayer, but think about things that we press down on in Waters Church. And, and I think all good churches do this, like small group membership. Small group membership. Like, don't just pray alone. Get with other Christians and pray. I have conversations with people all the time in our church lobby. Uh, and you'll see me. If you come to our church, you'll see me in the lobby. You might not get a chance to meet me. I don't get a chance to meet everybody. we got thousands of people that come. But listen, I try to have conversations with, the many, with as many people as I can in that lobby. I have conversations with people all the time in the lobby. And I meet people sometimes, and they're in a complete mess. Their life is a mess. Everything's falling apart. And I ask them a question. I always ask this question. Are you in a small group? And every time they're in a mess, I ask the question, are you in a small group? Everyone in a mess says no to that question. Every single person who's in a total mess in their life when I meet them is not in a small group. This is not a coincidence, my friend. This is not a coincidence. Every, every person I meet in a small group, they're not in a mess. It's amazing. You say, is, is that it? Is that the magic formula? Is that the magic wand? Is that the, the heal-all? No, what it is is you doing life the way God has intended you to do life, together with other Christians in relationship with one another. When you do not do that, you suffer. I had zero skin in the game. I say it again. I have zero skin in the game. You're not in a small group. I don't suffer. You suffer. You're in a small group. You get stronger. You strengthen your life. This is God's word for your good. So I met a woman this past weekend. She was in the lobby. This is after our services this past weekend. And she was waiting to talk to me. I was, I was talking to these other people and I could see her in the corner of my eye. She wanted to talk to me. And she waited literally for like 15 minutes as I cleaned up this conversation with another couple. So finally I said, I think this lady over here wants to talk to me. I turned to her and she came to her. Life was a mess, a complete mess. I let her speak and I let her continue to speak. And she spoke. And if I didn't interrupt her, I think today on Wednesday at noon, I would still be talking to her in the lobby, listening to her, all her problems, listening to all the things that everybody else was doing wrong uh, in her life and doing wrong toward her. And I had to stop her. I said, listen, stop, stop. And I had another small group leader with me. I said, listen, let me ask you a question. Are you in a small group? And the answer was, guess. Guess what the answer was? Well, I was. And I stopped because I got a job. Um, I said, wait a second. Every, pretty much everybody else in a small group of water church has a job. So that can't be an excuse. You got to get out of that rut. You got to get into a small group. She was in a small group. She's not in a small group. I said, listen, you can't be coming to me with all your problems. I can't in this moment. She wanted prayer. I can't. This small little magical prayer at, at, in the lobby after service is not going to fix all your problems. You need to do life with Christians who believe in Jesus and can pray for you over the long term. You need to be in a relationship. You need a team of Christians behind you. See, this is what I see. Many Christians, they want God to be a vending machine. They want God to be a heavenly vending machine. They come to him when life falls apart. They come to him when they need a candy bar, a pick-me-up, a little dose of, I don't know, chocolate. Help me, Lord. And they come, and then they say, okay, I got this relationship with God. No, you treat him like a vending machine to come and solve all your problems. That's not how God works. That's never been how God works, okay? God wants relationship with you, and we get that. Like, a lot of Christians get that. I know God owes a relationship with me. I want a relationship with God. I like my, I like God. I love Jesus. I fall. Okay, yeah, but how do you relate to him? Because I find that we limit relationship to, I pray and I go to church, but what about relating to his body? What about knowing some people by their first name who believe in Jesus, uh, going to their homes, doing life together, going out to dinner together, having Memorial Day barbecues together, having July 4th cookouts together with Christians. Some of you Christians, your life is a mess. You have no Christian friends. You have no Christian uh, relationships. And you wonder why your life sucks. It's because you're not doing it the way God wants you to do it. When we talk about relating to God, we're not talking about you just having this private prayer life with God in your car on the way to work in the morning. We're talking about you getting out of just this lonely, self-oriented existence where there's this heavily vending machine to call on when you need things and actually getting in relationship with people who belong to the, quote, body of Christ because that's what the church is. It is the body of Christ. Now, we see this exemplified in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. Right after, right after the Holy Spirit comes and fills the apostles, right? The summation of what the church is, 
is actually described at the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. They devoted themselves not just to the Bible, but to the fellowship. And then it says to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, I find that Christians are devoted to three out of those four things. Most Christians are devoted to three out of those four things. They're devoted to the, the apostles' teaching, the Bible. At least they like the Bible. They might not believe, they might not follow the Bible, but they like listening about the Bible, right? Listening to the Bible. Secondly, they, they believe in the breaking of bread, communion, or the Eucharist, if you're a Catholic, right? Uh, and prayers. They believe in those three things. But that, that's, that's that second one on the list, the fellowship, that one's like optional. As well, I, I do, you know, Christianity, you know, with myself and my car and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, church, I don't really get too involved. I don't want to get too involved. I've been hurt by a lot of Christians, you know. I know, a per- I know a person who went to a small group, and they went to a small group, and it was filled with, you know, heathen Christians. And so it wasn't a good small group from what they described to me. It was not a healthy small group. It wasn't this church. It was another church. And so I said, you know, they, so they said, we left because we just couldn't take it. It was just a bunch of drama. I said, well, did you try another one? No. You just gave up on it altogether. Like, why? Why give up altogether? One bad experience, you give up altogether? Find another one. Go to one where you can find some Christians you can relate to. It takes time to do this, but I'm telling you, the benefits are through the roof for your personal life. Devote yourself, not just to the Bible, not just to prayer, not just to the, the uh, ceremonial practices of the church like the breaking of bread and baptism. Devote yourself to the fellowship. Verse 46 of Acts chapter 2, same chapter, same, same description of the early church. And day by day, quote, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They went to temple. That's the big church. That's the big church gathering. That's what we do on the weekend. And then they broke bread in their homes. That's small group. That's the little gathering. And they received, the Bible says, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I say this all the time. Loneliness is an epidemic in our country. In our highly connected country, we are lonelier than ever. And the reason why we need to get to church, get involved in small group, we need to get out of our homes and get in other people's homes and get in other people's lives and have relationships with other people is for the joy of our own hearts. I'm telling you, if you do this, you will be blessed. I'm on a wicked diatribe. I know, I'm on a, I'm on a big, big detour all the way. Circling back now. Here we come, back to Revelation chapter 16. You thought I lost it, but I didn't. That was all in my notes. Let's move on to the bold judgments because we're going to go through these quickly. Verse two. So the first angel, Revelation 16, verse two. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. Okay, notice that the bowl is poured out on those who worship I'm sorry, who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. So this is not judgment upon believers. This is judgment upon the people who have rejected God. So remember that I said, depending on your the, which view of the four that you accept of Revelation, uh, the mark of the beast represents something different for the four views. So the historicists, okay, bear with me, Catholics. <laughs> the historicist sees the corrupt papacy of the 15th, 16th, 17th century as the beast. Okay, I'm not saying anything about today's modern Catholic church. I'm saying that's how the historicist view of the, um, what would you call that? The uh, 15th, 16th, I guess there's no age for that. What is that, the pre-modern age? I think that's the pre-modern age, yeah. 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. So that's the historicist view. The, the preterist view sees the beast as the Jerusalem that has forsaken trust in God for trust in the Roman Empire, uh, trust in Caesar. Remember when they crucified Jesus, they said, we have no king but, Je- but Caesar. So they were actually aligned, spiritually speaking or emotionally speaking, with Caesar more than they were with the son of the living God, their own brother who came to save them, and they rejected him. And so that is the beast in, in the preterist view. The beast is the Judaism that has rejected God and aligned with the Roman Empire or Caesar, if you will. Uh, and then the futurist view sees uh, the, the beast as this end-time world leader who will rise probably somewhere from Europe and um, will lead a coalition of nations together to form a one-world government and, and bring about this compact with Israel for seven years, which he will break three and a half years in and then uh, start to turn on the Jews and uh, brutally massacre them. But out of that, uh, out of those Jews will become 144,000 witnesses who will spread the word of Jesus around the world and usher in the final kingdom of God. The spiritualist view sees any, any spirit of the age that is anti-Christian as the beast. 
So when this judgment comes, it's coming upon those who followed those forces. So the historicist actually sees this first bull as the start of the French Revolution. Uh, in the French Revolution, 40,000 people were killed. This is a revolution. It was an uprising against Catholicism in uh, France. Catholicism was basically the rule of France in that day. And uh, the French Revolution uh, literally uh, revolted against France. Actually, the, the Pope had to actually, uh, it was actually captured uh, and uh, by French forces at one point during the revolution. Uh, the the Predator's view um, sees here, interesting view, in light of Moses' warnings to Israel, according to the Preterist view, Jerusalem is the new Egypt and the church is the new Israel. And so there's this, there's this warning in Deuteronomy 28, 27, where God actually says, if you reject me, I will bring upon you the curses that I brought upon the Egyptians. Very interesting. If you reject me, God says, in Deuteronomy 28, I will bring upon you, okay, the curses that are brought upon the Egyptians. And so verse 27 of Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with scab, with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Verse 35, the Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils, which cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. So these painful sores come upon the Jews who rejected the Lord Jesus. And this happens in AD 70. And then the futurist sees, this, uh, sees the sores as the result of nuclear radiation, uh, nuclear fallout, which we have evidence for, by the way, uh, with Chernobyl and uh, the uh, nuclear bombs that were dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, during World War II. Uh, so that's how the futurist sees. Future, a lot of this uh, Revelation chapter 16 for the futurist is all about nuclear war. Nuclear war is going to destroy everything. This is Hal Lindsey. If you grew up in a church like mine, you remember the name Hal Lindsey. He wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth Described Nuclear Fallout as the, um, the uh, instigation behind all these uh, very, very vivid images of Revelation's judgments. Uh, so the spiritualist sees these sores very basically, it says the sores that came upon people are basically just the results of immoral and impure living. So what we just talked about, like you reject God, you suffer. That's how the spiritualist views this first bowl. Going on to the, the second bowl, verse three says the second angel, verse three, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. Okay, so the first bowl, earth, second bowl, sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. So the historicist sees this as, uh, God's judgment, because it's on the sea now, this is God's judgment upon France's navy. Interesting little historical tidbit here. France once had the most powerful navy in the world. Now, when we say who had the most powerful navy, navy in the world, today we say America, but before America it was Great Britain. And guess what? Before Great Britain it was France. So this is interesting. Uh, at the height of the, um, I'm sorry, after the French Revolution, the Britons came in. The Brits, sorry, came in and literally pulverized France's navy, destroyed them time and time again. And so interesting thing for the historicists is they see the start of, of the, uh, the, the bold judgments is the start of the French Revolution. And then the consequences are their navy is decimated and the Brits come in and they destroyed their navy. So uh, just interesting history here when you study the, the historicist view of Revelation. The Preterist sees this as the... Um, the battle, uh, sorry, the Preterist now takes a different turn. What the Preterist had been saying for so long is that the judgment of God was upon Jerusalem for rejecting Jesus, but now here at the bold judgments is turning from the earth, which represents Israel. If you remember this, the earth is always, or the land is always a symbol in, in, in Judaism for Israel, and the sea is always a symbol for the Gentile, non-Israel nations. And so now this judgment comes upon the sea, and so they see that as the judgment upon the Roman Empire with whom so many Jews aligned. Uh, so that's how the preterist kind of makes a little switch there here at uh, bowl number two. The futurist takes this to be completely figurative, actually. The, the sea is a picture of the Gentile nations who attack Israel during the tribulation. So now God judges the nations for attacking Israel. Uh, and basically blood of a corpse, they become, you know, the, the, the dead are everywhere, so on and so forth. And then the spiritualist sees the sea as a picture of humanity and its decay. Again, when, hum when humanity disobeys God, it only destroys itself and it becomes putrefied and deadly. And that's what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast just a little while ago. So that's how the views interpret the third, second bowl. The third bowl, verse four, the angel poured out his bowl into the rivers. So now look at the trajectory. First bowl, earth. Second bowl, 
sea, third bowl, rivers, and the springs of water, and they became blood. Uh, the historicist says this is the Napoleonic Wars against northern Italy, which is known for its many rivers. The preterist sees the pollution of water sources that occurred during the Jerusalem siege, the Roman siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. The futurists and spiritualists both take this symbolically. Uh, rivers in Scripture are the, a picture of the joys of life. And so what the futurists and spiritualists, cool little interpretation here, they say, look, when sin has run its full course, in a person's life, even the normal joys of life, the rivers, quote unquote, are polluted. They become deadly. And that's true. You can only do so much drinking. You can only do so much illicit sex. You can only do so much gambling. You can only do so much stealing and robbing and killing and murdering. It turns deadly in your life. And so that's how they picture those three view, uh, those three bowls. And what we see, big picture, I want you to see a big picture here. What we see is a decreation of sorts. Uh, we see allusions to Egypt's, Egypt's plagues. And I, and I emphasize the allusion to Egypt's plagues again because I want you to see how Revelation is teaching you to see the world. Revelation is teaching the church to see themselves as new Israel, saved out of a world that is coming under the judgment of God. That's what the church is. The church is that... That, that group of slaves saved by our true Moses, Jesus Christ, who leads us through the waters of baptism and into the promised land as he brings Egypt's powers crumbling to the ground, as he destroys and, and nullifies all the false gods that Egypt worships, worshipped, and he brings his people out. Well, Christian, this is who you are. You are the Israel of God that God is bringing out of a world gone corrupt, out of a world gone bad, and he is saving you and bringing you into the promised land. That's why all these uh, Exodus, 50, uh, Exodus chapters uh, 4 through 15 allusions are there. They're teaching you how to see who you are in Christ. You are saved from the judgment of God that came upon Egypt. And today the world powers are a picture. I mean, Egypt is a picture of the world powers of today. Anyway, going on, let's take a look at what happens now because we have an interlude here in verse five, six, and seven, a little interlude. Check this interlude out. After the first three judgments, verse five, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Okay, little interlude here between bowl three and four. Why? Because as bad as it's getting, Scripture is affirming these judgments are just. God is bringing about just judgments upon the world. We struggle with God's judgment. We think that God's just supposed to love everybody. A lot of people out there, God's just supposed to love everybody. Le, 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 le. Like, no, no, no. He's also holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says God is love, love, love. It says God is love. But the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6, God is holy, holy, holy. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. Meaning that his most, you know, effusive, if you will, attribute is holiness. And holiness means he cannot stand sin and wickedness. Now, we are becoming a culture that is disconnected from this, like I said at the top of this podcast. Um, the great atheists of our day and of previous generations love to attack the judgment of God. They hate the idea of a judgment of God. The judgment of God is so evil, so antiquated, so Victorian age, so, so outdated. Wrong side of history, God of judgment. How dare we, right? Christopher Hitchens, who just died recently, actually. Well, not recently anymore, about five or six years ago. He described the book of Revelation as, quote, deluded fantasies from the mind of the Apostle John. He says that, quote, nothing proves the man-made character of religion as obviously as the sick mind that designed hell. Man, if you agree with a guy like that, watch out. <laughs> All right, basically saying any kind of God that judges is just sick, just sick man-made character. Richard Dawkins, who is still alive, also a very ardent atheist, writes that the teaching of that teaching children, quote, to believe in something like the punishment of sins in an eternal hell 
is a worse form of child abuse than their sexual molestation by Roman Catholic priests. Teaching kids about the punishments of sin in an eternal hell is worse child abuse than sexual molestation by Catholic priests. Well, both are bad, and both will be judged in hell. Okay? Not, I'm sorry, not teaching the children about punishment is bad. I'm talking about sins, and eternal hell is bad, and sexual molestation by Catholic priests is bad. And by the way, Jesus affirmed that the worst form of hell is reserved for the molestation of children, those who molest, molest children. He said, it's better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea than you uh, mislead one of these little ones, my disciples. But herein lies the contradiction in terms for Richard Dawkins. He's talking about a gross, immoral evil, right? The molestation of children. That is a gross, immoral evil. Well, it has to be judged. It has to be judged eternally, right? This, you, you can't just die. Like these priests who did this, and then they commit suicide. And then that's it. Their life is over. They got away with it for thousands, for, hundred, for decades, and then suddenly they just kill themselves, and that's it? No punishment? No recourse? No accountability? Are you kidding me? No, no, no. He's actually contradicting himself in this very quote. Because he's saying, look, punishment in hell, what a horrible, horrible concept. This is, that's worse than molesting children. Well, wait a second. If you molest children, Christians believe that if you molest children, you go to the darkest place in hell. See, I think that's much more amenable than just denying the existence of hell. The point being is that in denying hell, Richard Dawkins is actually proving the need for hell to exist. Because we know that, this, this, that, that this, um, molesting children is bad. It is evil, and so it must be punished. And if that priest commits suicide as soon as he's caught, then guess what? There's a holy God of the universe that will hold him accountable for eternity. I want to believe in that. Don't you? Like Hitler, who killed himself right before the end of World War II. You want to believe that he just, that's it? That's the end of his life? He massacred all those Jews, all those people? He, he led Europe into a complete self-destruction and you want to believe that he just oh he just kills himself at the end that's it no there's an eternal hell awaiting him and that is that is a a calming it should be a calming effect upon you i know i'm getting excited about it because I, it's like this is this is why hell has to exist god's wrath has to exist so i i get this phrase too there's a lot of christians well i could never believe in a god who would Blah, 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 blah. Fill in the blank. I could never believe in a God who would. Well, and I always want to finish that statement with saying, who would what? Disagree with you? Who would what? Judge people that you don't think need to be judged? You know, this is the thing about the judgment of God. Everybody believes in the judgment of God. It's just we're arguing about what sins God should judge. <laughs> That's the reality. And so what we see, though, in Revelation 16, 5 to 7, is the angel is affirming these are just judgments. Don't lose your mind over this. But we go back to the judgments. Okay, back to the fourth bowl. Verse 8 says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fire, by the fierce heat, and they, could, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Okay. Uh, the historicist sees this as the downfall of papal authority. So the sun is a picture of authority in the in the revel, in revelation the the historian says the papal authority is removed and this is when the french uh, revolution happens they actually kidnapped the pope they brought him um, uh, prisoner to france and and this left uh, the catholic church in uh, scorched by a fierce quote unquote heat and they you know they were kind of lost along the way uh, the preterist says this is the the downfall of rome by the goths and vandals the futurist says nuclear war nuclear fallout and then the spiritualist says this is the sun becoming a curse that emphasizes that the totality of life is affected by god's wrath upon our sin anyway i want to break away from these four views because i just want to bear in here on that last line in verse 9 when it says they did not repent and give him glory so look Judgment happens and people don't repent. Like they are experiencing boils. They are experiencing darkness. They are experiencing fierce heat. They are experiencing blood in the streets. And the Bible says, in spite of that, they still don't repent. And this is speaking to the hardness of men's hearts. God judges and wrath is expressed and people don't actually say, Maybe we're doing something wrong. Do you know like anybody like that? You probably do. You might be one of them. You're doing things that are against God's word. You're suffering as a result. And instead of turning to him, you 
actually get mad. You don't turn to him at all. Your, your, your problems don't turn you toward God. And I want to say, you know what? Don't let that be you. Let your problems turn you toward God. Okay, uh, the, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 7. I love this verse. It says, God is a righteous judge, verse 11, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fear, fiery, fiery shafts. But look at verse 14 of Psalm 7. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Verse 15, he makes a pit digging it out, falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. What's that verse saying? What's that passage saying? It's saying, look, the wrath of God is usually just the results of our own stupidity, the results of our own disobedience. We make these pits, we fall into them, and we don't turn to God. Or as Proverbs 19.3 says, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they're angry with God. That's Proverbs 19.3. There's so many people like that. Verse 10 of Revelation 16 says this, The fifth angel, going on, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their evil deeds. Again, another judgment, okay? And this, again, darkness is reminiscent of the judgment plagues of Egypt. And so I could go into the four views, but I'm just going to skip over that for a moment because I just want to just show you again. As God continues to bring judgment upon the world that rejects him. Verse 11 says, instead of turning to God, they curse God. <laughs> and they did not repent. So they don't just ignore God. Now they're actually cursing at God. They're blaming God. And I'm going somewhere with this, so stay with me. But we've got to finish up these bowls or we're all never going to get there. Verse 12 the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his waters was dried up to, repair, to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false, prophets, false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, verse 15, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen and exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, so we're talking about God's judgment leading to the final once and for all battle. Now, the historicist, again, just quickly brush over this. The historicist says this is World War I. And the reason why is because historicist view of Revelation has pretty much died off. This is not the predominant view of Revelation anymore. They actually died off around 1830. There's very few historicist writers out there, and they say this final battle was World War I. Well, of course, we know that's not true anymore. There was World War II, and uh, there's been wars since World War II. But they just see this as that, that final, that sixth angel leading to Armageddon, which is World War I. Uh, that's just an interesting view. It's just to point out that as much as we can look at these views, we don't want to fall into any one category because they all have their weaknesses. And again, we need to say, what is Revelation teaching us about Jesus and how to see our world? Okay, so Armageddon, let's talk about that for a moment because I know a lot of people want to probably hear about what Armageddon is. Armageddon literally in Hebrew means mountain of Megiddo. Now, I've been to Megiddo. And what's interesting about Megiddo in Israel, it's right in the center. It's called the belly button of Canaan. It's right in the center of Israel. And what's interesting is it's not a mountain. It's actually a valley. But if you look at the models of Megiddo, there's, it looks like a kind of like a man-made mountain. It's kind of like comes out of the valley as a little lump, little hill. And you can walk through the remnants there, the, the archaeological digs all around there. And estimates are that that little city, that little town called Megiddo, has been the home of, check this out, 23 cities over the course of 7,000 years of human history. 23 cities on one spot of land. 23 civilizations. Think about that. Over 7,000 years. And what I think Armageddon is, here's what I think, the mountain of Mar Ar Armageddon, mountain of Megiddo, sorry, is a picture of all the civilizations of the world antagonistic toward God coming against him for battle. And at the end of the day, this is the heart of man. The heart of man rages, the unsaved, unconverted heart of man rages against God's authority. 
hates God's authority and is angered with God. And that's what Armageddon is, the culmination of the ages. And this is where history is headed. It's not World War I. It's actually something yet to come. Uh, so verse 17 says this, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So now you see, this is definitely talking about something that has yet to come because it's such as nothing has been seen on the earth, okay? And then it says, verse 19, the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink, uh, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Again, I could go into the four views, but I won't for time's sake. But here's what I'm trying to say. Here's what Revelation is saying, is that the, the, the final plague is into the air. So we had the earth was affected. We had the uh, sea affected, the rivers, the sun. Now we have the very air itself. What's happening? Decreation. The wrath of God is undoing the kingdoms of this world that are antagonistic toward him through his Wrath. His wrath is being uh, is being enacted upon a rebellious society. And just a note about the air too, because think about this: the scripture calls the devil the prince of the power of the air. Who leads this antagonism against God? The devil. If you're not in the family of God, you're in the family of the devil. Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, "He says your father the devil." They said, "Hey, our father's Abraham." He said, "No, if you were Abraham's children, you'd follow Abraham." Your father's the devil. He's antagonistic toward God. That's why you hate me. I, I'm basically saying I am God. I'm God the Son. And so what you see here is at the end of days, God's wrath is poured out upon those who reject him and hate him. And so why do I share this? Why does Revelation share this? What is it teaching us? We've got to get to the lessons, right? First, the wrath of God is coming and will come upon the world in increasing measure. So right now, and I've said this before, but right now, you know, we experience the passive wrath of God. The passive wrath of God is the consequences for stupid and unwise behavior, disobedience to God. But then there's going to come a time for the active wrath of God. And it's going to come because God is holy. Again, we can't disconnect from God's holiness. We can't. A.W. Tozer says this about the holiness of God. I love it. Quote, The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is under his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. So the wrath of God, I have a problem with it. Well, God just hates those things that destroy his creation. And that's what you have to see. That's how you have to see it. So I always share this illustration of my child. He's, he's running in the, in the driveway, and, and if he runs too far, I don't say, hey, maybe don't run into the street. Hey, I love you. I never, <laughs> I don't say that at that moment. What do I say? I say, Jake! Okay, so now you know who I'm yelling at. But I say, Jake! You know, I, I, I yell as loud as, don't stop! You know, I am screaming at the top of my lungs. I don't care who hears. I don't care. Because, why? Because I don't want my child to get hit by a car. Okay, now, that's called wrath. That's called wrath. That's God saying, stop it. I don't want you destroyed. And so the wrath of God is God hating what destroys you. So this is what you need to understand when it comes to God's holiness and God's justice. Can I say a couple things more about the wrath of God? Um, I can because I'm the leader of this podcast, so I'll say them. The wrath of God frees the Christian from the need to avenge his own harm or hurt. This is a good point about the wrath of God. The wrath of God frees you from worrying about making all things equal. There's a lot of people out there living with chips on their shoulders. Oh, I got to get back at all those people for hurting me. Well, the wrath of God takes care of that. Did you know that the Bible says in Romans 12, 19, Behold, never a beloved... Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The wrath of God frees the Christians to stop worrying about offenses that have come against them. And uh, number two, the wrath of God frees the Christian to serve those who hurt them. This is how we can love our enemies. 
I don't want to love my enemies because my enemies will take advantage of me. Well, I understand that. But the good news is, is that the, if your enemies keep mis, misusing, mis, uh, mistreating you and, and hurting you and abusing you, God is going to take care of them. And now you are free. You don't have to hurt them. God will take care of them. And so now you are free to love them. And you say, well, why should I love them? They hurt me. Okay, because we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, overcome evil with good. That's what Romans 12, 20 through 21 says. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then number three about the wrath of God, it frees the Christian from worldly powers that promote, condone, and legitimize evil. See, right now in America, we're tempted to follow the course of this world. Follow the course of this world about biblical marriage. Follow this course of the world about abortion and life issues. Follow the course of this world about whether or not marijuana and drug abuse is right or wrong and all this stuff. Follow the course of the world. Why? Because it's the popular view. Get on the right side of history, they tell us. And then we say, well, wait a second. Our scriptures say actually something different. And you say, well, well, maybe I should follow them. No, no, no. You are going to be set free from those powers. It's just going to take time as you see the downfall of those powers over the long haul, like we talked about earlier, frees you from that, okay? What you see right now as portrayed as good and wonderful and, you know, normal and natural, and it's against God's word, well, it's just going to take a matter of time before it's not. It's actually unhealthy, and it proves itself to be unwise. And what the wrath of God says is, the wrath of God says, I'm going to eliminate that through, through wrath, through holy wrath, and now you don't have to follow it because you're going to see. You're going to see the destruction, the self-destruction in many cases of what people do to themselves. Secondly, the wrath, the heart of man. This is what Revelation 16 teaches us. The heart of man is incredibly hardened toward God. I've, I said it a couple of times. Even the scripture said it. If you saw it in Revelation chapter 16, as the bold judgments come upon humanity, humanity doesn't repent. They get harder toward God. They get angry toward God. They start cursing God. And the heart of the sinner is conditioned to disregard God no matter what. I said this at the beginning of the podcast episode, and I want to bear in here. It's amazing to see this. Revelation is teaching us about the unbeliever's mind. The unbeliever's mind is already made up about God. In good times, the unbeliever claims they don't need God. God is for the weak. God, I, my, my, I've got my life perfectly fine. God is for the weak, the people who can't get their act together. God's for them. But then on, conversely, in bad times, that same person blames God or denies that there is a God. It, it's, it's amazing how it's the same people who say there can't be a God because of all the wars and famines and plagues in the world will also ignore God when they live in luxury and in health and in wealth. It's just... <laughs> the hardness of man's heart. It is the hardness of man's heart. I see this in America all the time. It's easy to be an atheist in America. It's easy. Why? Because you are well-fed. You have all that you need and more than what you need. You can look over at other countries where there's hunger and famine and say, see, there can't be a God. Look at all those starving people. Meanwhile, they say this while Christians go over to those countries and build hospitals and hand out food and start churches and rebuild what sin has destroyed. I have been to those countries. I have been to those neighborhoods. I've walked through neighborhoods that were covered with prostitution. I walked through one in Uganda a couple of weeks ago, and right in the middle of that center of prostitution in Uganda is a church, a little light church, a gospel-centered church led by Pastor Richmond Wandera. And here in that little city where it's called De the Devil's Triangle, 200 brothels in within uh, two square miles or th uh, five square miles of that church, he's planted his church. Do you know that in that church, Pastor Richmond Wanderer requires in their membership class, if you make $300 or more a month, you must adopt a poor family in that area and sponsor them. That's in his membership class. His church is thriving, growing in the middle of hell. Why? Well, that begin that's because... Uh, I, that's going to lead me to my third point, but I just want to say this. Listen, it's easy to be an unbeliever in America where you have it so good and you can look at other countries and say why they have it so bad. See, there can't be a God. But look at who's going to those countries. Look at who's going. It's Christians. It's people who believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So it brings me to the third and final point. The gospel is the only power to save men from their hardness of heart. 
This is what we preach, the gospel of Jesus, that God sent his son to die for his enemies, me, you, those who were formerly unbelievers. God sent Jesus to die for us. It's the power of the gospel that changes the human heart. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There is a power in the gospel that saves even the hardest of hearts. And so... To close this episode of the Deep End Podcast, instead of a fancy closeout from me, I want to share a story. I want to share a story from a baptism at Waters Church this past weekend. And I want you to hear it from a guy who thought God was for the weak, who considered all the things that I'm telling you the hardness of men's hearts consider. And the gospel was given to him. He heard it, he received it, and he was changed by it. And I close this podcast with his story. Watch this. Hi, my name is Edward John McSweeney. I grew up in a Catholic family. Uh, We went to church. And as I grew and got older, um, I fell away from the church. But I think I always had my hope and faith. I was a single father, and I brought my daughter through baptism and first communion. And I was married in the church. I just always thought that God was for the weak and for the children. And that, you know, I was strong. I mean, I was a Marine. I was invincible. He could take care of everyone else, and I could take care of myself. And then uh, as I got older, I had a battle with alcohol in my later life, and uh, it got a real good hold of me. And my will would just not break it. I went into a hospital, and I met a nurse from Waters. And my daughter knew her. And from then, I came to Waters, and I heard the gospel. And it filled my heart, and my life started getting better from then. I said, it's just the anxiety, the fear. I still have some of it, but it goes away if you put your trust in Jesus. My life now, I've been here three years. I think I'm ready to get baptized. I know I'm ready to get baptized. Jesus is my light, my Savior, and having him with me, It's not a sign of weakness. It's so much strength I have found through Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.